Hello, everyone. Hope that you are doing well. Uh, For those of you tuning in for the first time, this is In Defense of Liberation, uh, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement, a.k.a. proletarian revolution. Um, For those of you coming by once again, uh, because you enjoyed the program you checked out and you wanted to check out more, please let me know uh, what you think of the show by either rating the program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify um, and leaving a comment. Or you can all, anybody who wants to, for whatever reason, connect with me. Uh, you can reach out to me in defense of liberation at gmail.com. No caps or spaces. You can connect with me on social media. I am on Twitter at redstarbitch420 uh, because I'm really cool. Um, <laughs> and you can also find me on Instagram at in defense of liberation. Um, so now that we got that aside, the second thing I want to let you all know is that this is a morning commute. Uh, the reason why I say this is because this is, uh, meaning that you are riding in my car with me on the way to work. So, uh, this is not necessarily the most structured discussion. It's not going to be, uh, you know, planned out like a lecture. Um, very few of my discussions are, and, uh, you're also going to have to deal with some background noise. So apologies for that. Also apologies for the nasally gross nature of my voice two weeks in, I'm still getting over this cold, um, this sinus infection, whatever you want to call it, because it's clear that the doctors don't know, um, but they tell me it's not COVID, so I guess that's good, um, anyways, yeah, so I want to talk about a topic that some of us tuning in today might already kind of have somewhat of an agreement upon, but I think that we have to understand, like, a little bit deeper why it is that, like, the U.S., the United States, North America, is, like, the international oppressor, um, the economic, political, and social realities that exist, and why, um, you know, all this rhetoric against these different countries around the world and the struggles which they've engaged in is actually warmongering and is the intended kind of like ground layer for a full-scale international war with China, Russia, and anybody who, you know, steps up to defend them. But before we get into that, I want to talk about a few things. First and foremost, for folks who aren't really kind of already at this point in understanding, the United States is the bad guy, right? Every time that we watch a movie or that we hear about, you know, a historical event or we read a book about, you know, some conflict in the West, we commonly are told, you know, the United States or Europe uh, kind of swooped in and saved the day in cases like World War One, World War Two, they fought to defend the freedom of the uh, military dictatorship in South Vietnam, of the uh, military dictatorship in South Korea, of the military dictatorship in uh, many different countries, but also fought against the 
national liberation struggles and socialist revolutions which have taken place around the world. Not only have they done this, but they've also gone on to directly involve themselves militarily in over 212 different uh, instances since the, I think it was 1798, according to a recent article posted by Geopolitical Economy, Ben Norton, um, which uses the U.S. government's own data um, to speak about all the different uh, wars in which the U.S. has involved itself in openly, and these are only, you know, kind of the, the fat off the cream, um, because it's very clear that the United States and NATO, aka the United States lapdogs, um, had their hands in conflicts around the world. So, if you're not necessarily clear you know, sold on this idea, if you're still, uh, somewhat caught up in the mentality that these types of, uh, realities are conspiratorial, I would implore you to, again, read, read the State Department, Department of Defense's own, uh, information, uh, look through the declassified cables sent between military officials during, uh, World War One, World War Two, during the Korean War, during the Vietnam War, during the illegal Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, during the overthrow of the democratically elected uh, Lumumba government in the Congo, uh, the overthrow of, you know, even more recently, like in 2014, the overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, whatever his name is, from uh, Ukraine. Um, who had kind of been on the fence about joining NATO and was looking like he wasn't going to. And hmm, isn't that convenient that uh, then he's overthrown by a neo-fascist coup supported by the likes of folks such as Victoria Newland? Um, folks can look up Victoria Newland for a lovely little introduction. But anyways, so... If you're still not convinced, right, we could take it to the economic uh, reality, where if you are a developed nation, right, developed, so as to say, industrialized, um, you have a reality which cannot exist without the further oppression of the majority of the so-called developing world. What do I mean by this? Well, Marx and Engels put it pretty succinctly in a letter um, speaking about the uh, supposed capitalist boom of Britain in the 1850s, where they said to think only a few million um, Indians had to die so that one and a half million could enjoy moderate prosperity for three out of ten years. So that's just kind of a quote pulled out of thin air, but the context to which you know Marx and Engels are discussing is. Britain's colonialism of India 
and the mass starvation, subjugation, and enslavement of Indian peoples uh, by the British government, by the British imperialists, who, you know, were trying to use their colonies, as colonial powers and imperialists do, to offset some of the tension and working class struggle outside of the core nation. So by diverting, you know, some of the worst conditions to the Indian nation and to the Indian people, Britain was able to save itself from civil war for a period of time. And, you know, that's what oppressing nations do out of economic necessity. Because, historically speaking, once a nation like Britain or France or Germany or North America consolidate themselves into, like, an oppressor nation. Um, Since the onset of capitalism, but even before then, especially during the period by which capitalism's bricks were being laid, uh, known as colonialism, the only way that, you know, the the colonizers could survive, and still today, is off of the backs and, you know, labor of the oppressed peoples. It's the only way that capitalists can go on making a profit is by exploiting not only their wage laborers, but also through, you know, price gouging, through protectionism, through increased interest through uh, lack of supplies in the open market, through a slowdown or complete shutdown of production. There's all different ways that the capitalist class ensures the most profits possible off of the exploitation and suffering of the rest of the world. Something as simple as food is, you know, one of the easiest examples. There are people who are billionaires, such as Bill Gates um, and others, because of the wealth of agricultural land or produce that they sell um, for a profit after exploiting extremely cheap labor, uh, shipping and containing in extremely cheap, uh, impractical, illogical ways, bringing food from one region across the country just to simply bring food from that region back to the other, um, rather than developing food sovereignty, rather than developing agricultural practices that are communal. All of these things, of course, would lead to a minimization of the profit that the capitalist class would be able to make off of the production of food. And so therefore, what do they do? They make food a human necessity, something that is quite out of reach for 3.5 billion people across the world, at least. Um, So, this is not because necessarily one 
can say this or that person is evil. Um, sure. Do I agree? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but when we look at the economic and political situation and also, therefore, the social relations that develop, you know, in these different circumstances, the economic situation informs and enforces the political situation, which enforces the, um, social relations in order to maintain the economic exploitation. So take, for example, you know, slavery in the United States. The economic system was one based off of mass unpaid enslaved labor of African peoples. And another layer was, of course, the unpaid and cheap labor of indigenous peoples and of, you know, people in... Mexico, uh, in territories which previously would have been known as Mexico, which is something we rarely ever talk about, but something I continue to learn more and more about every single day, Uh, and through the wage labor, which was forced upon the poorest of the settler class and of the non-property owners. So there's, there's like different layers to this exploitation, not only for the sake of just further profit, but also if, you know, this group of people over here is suffering and so is this other group of people, you have to make sure that they don't get together and start doing something about that. So you have to find ways to divide and conquer. And so the continuation of things like the transatlantic slave trade, racism, etc. We're not only exclusively for the hatred of, you know, black skin of African people, but also because it was economically sound and politically sound and socially sound for the slave masters to go on convincing uh, the enslaved people that it was other white people that were really doing their oppressing, not just wealthy landowning or slave masters, um, but also just white people in general. And then also on the flip side, the ruling class helped to develop a racist, xenophobic, uh, bigoted mindset towards non-white people in general across the world, which is systematically established in Europe and North America as the white nations, whereas the rest of the world is dictated as the non-white nations. Um, That level of oppression comes with a mass hatred and division between oppressed people groups, even between, you know, different shades of uh, different skin color, like in conditions like uh, uh, Guyana, uh, where Walter Rodney speaks about the difference between, um, you know, West Indian uh, people groups of Africans, of, um, I want to say also that they had another group of, like, uh, I think it might have just I think it might have been Indians. 
um, from India. Uh, and they all kind of formed a, somewhat of a caste system because, you know, the darker their skin complexion, in fact, the, uh, the deeper the levels of subjugation in a lot of cases. And the same is true in circumstances like Haiti, um, where uh, Toussaint de Louverture and uh, Dessalines, right, represented kind of two semi-different uh, conditions of formerly enslaved people as well as the offspring of the formerly enslaved and slave masters um, known as, you know, mixed race, quote-unquote, um, and the class differences which developed in these circumstances in order to, again, foment further division between the people groups which were being oppressed so as to not allow for them to join together and battle against their oppressors. And this is crucial to understand because, like, when you look at what's happening around the world right now with the U.S. in Syria, Somalia, Eritrea, and Ethiopia, in uh, Afghanistan, in Iran, in Iraq, in uh, Lebanon, in Jordan, in Thailand, in Pakistan, in Germany, in Italy, in France, in uh, all these different nations around the world with either effective, like, straight-up military bases, or, you know, in some cases they have, like, uh, I think it's in Ghana, um, an airport, right, that the Ghanaian government sold to, I think it's the U.S. military, not the U.S. government, but the U.S. military, which then effectively means that even though it's labeled as, like, a diplomatic base, um, it's not supposed to be used for military purposes, it, of course, 100% can and will and has been used for military purposes. So, you know, you think about the fact that we have 30,000, we, excuse me, I still do that sometimes, it's such a bad habit, that the United States has, um, 30,000 troops plus stationed in Germany right now, 5,000 in Romania, 3,000 in Lithuania. You got a bunch of, I mean, the U.S. goes on to try to deny it, but you have a bunch of evidence to prove that there are boots on the ground, U.S. soldiers, U.S. operatives, and intelligence agents in Ukraine actively forming militias and helping to train the uh, different soldiers um, on weaponry that the United States is sending. Um, you also have, of course, um, U.S. military officers in places like Japan, in Europe, in South Asia, um, set up in bases known as AFRICOM, CECOM, um, EUROCOM, all command centers, military operations centers, where the U.S. military sends its, you know, veteran service members to go plot courses for how to cause regime change or to 
ensure, you know, in previous times, but equally still, I'm sure this is still important to them now, ensure that the rise of socialist and communist forces is not allowed and that any kind of left organization that is really threatening power, that is really threatening capital, is wiped off of the face of the earth. Um, because that's what they did in Italy to the PCI. That's what they did in France to the Communist Party. That's what they did in El Salvador and in Indonesia. That's what they did in Nepal and in Yemen. That's what they did in Iran and Afghanistan. That's what they did in China. That's what they did in Vietnam. That's what they did in Korea. That's what they did all over the world in Guatemala, in Chile, in Argentina, in Peru. Right now, that is what they're doing in Peru. That's what they're doing in Syria. That's what they're doing in Iran. That's what they're doing in Pakistan. That's what they're doing in Ukraine. That's what they're doing all over the world because the United States is and always has been a destabilizing destabilizing agent for governments around the world due to economic and political necessity to control not only just simply the governments, because I think we simplify it when we think that, you know, all the United States wants to do is control the government. They go on to control the government so as to be able to control the productive forces, the mode of production, the labor forces, the resources, the marketplaces, the shipping, the land, the agriculture, they go on to want to take everything, everything. They take over the military, they take over the political parties, they take over the police force, they take over everything. So, you know, when we're talking about global conflict that's happening right now, like the possibility of war with China, um, and the ongoing war against Russia by NATO and NATO's uh, supporters. Um, it's not only going to lead to further heightened conflict and military action, but it's also going to lead towards the degradation of the world's population. It's going to lead towards further inequality and separation between the rich and the poor. It's going to lead towards more money going to the military apparatuses and uh, services. It's going to see more reactionary governments come into power. But it's also going to see the rise of people's movements, of social movements, of organizations, of revolutionary parties, and of revolutions around the world. It will and has led to an increase in class struggle. The crises of capitalism that have been reverberating since the 1900s have led to a situation where the former colonized nations have all fought for their either faux independence or true independence through socialism or national liberation. The former uh, colonized peoples in North America have began a militant struggle that has gone on for more than 60 years. in an organized fashion, that is, and has been ongoing since really the onset of colonialism in North America and in Africa. Um, and we also see a reality, which I think a lot of people don't uh, acknowledge, 
which is a real crisis of the ruling class where, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the former friends and a lot of the former allies among the ruling class interests really are starting to come into conflict with one another. You're seeing a crisis in both political parties, the Republican and the Democratic Party. You're seeing a crack between the relationships of Europe. You're seeing a huge uh, attempt by certain powers within Europe and Asia to further integrate themselves against the wishes of the U.S. and NATO. Um, you're also seeing a rise in class struggle in a fight back against things like police violence, uh, women's oppression, trans and LGBTQ plus oppression, um, poverty, inequality, etc. So I really do think that you have an opportunity here that a lot of folks are pointing to to show that ultimately all of these awful realities that the world is dealing with every day, they aren't enough on their face to lead towards revolution, towards class struggle. If you look to, you know, different unions, like in the U.S., I'm in a pretty reactionary union. <coughs> if you look to supposed liberal or uh, socialist or communist parties around the world, you see... <clears throat> a support for war you see a support for a continuation of circumstances as they are and you see a real lack of class analysis and class struggle and that is because we lack not only just you know simply I think a lot of people use the excuse that there isn't a revolutionary party and you know that's that you know but where does a revolutionary party come? It comes from the revolutionary people. It comes from the conscious and organized masses. And it comes from a struggle, which takes place over years. Um, you know, the Communist Party of China developed over 50 plus years of struggle. The uh, Bolshevik Party developed over 30, 40 years of struggle. So for us to expect that you know, the same will not be true for us that we can just magically say, you know, we need a communist party or we need a revolutionary party and then, boom, it's just going to pop up. Mm -mm. We really got to fight for that shit. And we really got to remember that, you know, if we want to learn, we have to try. If we want to succeed, we have to try. And if we want to develop and grow and change and evolve and become better at what we're doing, we have to try. And yeah, it's real fucking scary. You can go to jail for some of these things. You can get arrested and you can get killed for some of this shit. I mean, you can get killed for walking down the street uh, in most countries around the world. So, you know, what big difference does it make? I know that's kind of shitty to say, but like for a lot of people who are getting gunned down already in places like Palestine or in fucking, you know, 
New York City, in uh, Atlanta, in fucking Missouri. Like, it's not a huge step to say, all right, these motherfuckers are shooting at us. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to shoot back? Um, And I think, you know, a lot of people discount the developing organizations for not having a, you know, perfect analysis or for uh, making mistakes. And I understand, you know, um, I understand in the sense that, like, you know, you want to see more out of these organizations. You want a much more militant and revolutionary struggle. But when it comes down to where we are at in the level of development of the people's movements, of the liberation struggles, of the revolutionary parties and people within not only North America, but around the world, we have to understand that all of this exists within a context, a context where, again, you know, people's forces quote, progressive forces, like legitimately progressive, not just using that word, um, socialist and communist forces have been historically targeted, imprisoned, assassinated, jailed, thrown out of the country, um, beaten, you know, isolated, targeted, uh, threatened, etc. This has happened to people who are socialists and communists and people who aren't you have to think about all the different folks who struggled for and are continuing to struggle for liberation in North America who are consistently just offhandedly labeled as communists or as socialists or as you know a term that we're seeing catch some prevalence now collectivists or as anarchists and agitators or whatever terminology, uh, you know, is used to discredit these struggles. The goal is, in fact, as I said, to discredit these struggles because people are struggling all over the world. But if they are given the full ability to really fight for liberation as they might want or need to it's not like they're going to be given the perfect road ahead with no resistance with no you know real struggle so for us as individuals to rank or belittle or discredit an entire movement, an entire organization, an entire people group for one mistake or for many mistakes, for uh, lack of a critical lens. There's a line to be drawn, sure. But inconsistencies and ignorance, contradictions and lack of awareness are pretty congruent and common for all of us, right? Like, I don't know shit about 
a lot of things. But that doesn't make me wrong. And it also doesn't mean I don't care. And it also doesn't mean I'm not, like, revolutionary, that I'm not a socialist. Um, But it means that I'm developing, I'm growing. And a lot of that growth and development can only come through struggle. So, you know, this podcast is all well and cool, and I'm glad that people listen to it, and I I would love to get more feedback on it. But, um, you know, if we're not organizing, if we're not fighting... um, then what we mentioned earlier in the show about NATO and about the United States and about capitalist and imperialist nations around the world continuing to oppress, to segregate, to enslave, and to exploit the different people around the world in different ways, in different forms, trying to convince them to hate one another, to fight against one another, to rather than intertwine their struggles to isolate their struggles from one another. These are all tactics by which the imperialists succeed in not only taking away our revolutionary energy, but also killing us. Um, And that's us to mean all people fighting for another world, a better world. So... I want to finish on a positive note if I can because it's a pretty big you know pretty 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 big enemy we got uh we got up against ourselves it's uh it's an experienced enemy it's an enemy which has held political social economic and military power for an extended period of time which has allies and temporary friends or temporary allegiances with uh, banks, militias, fascists, businesses, executives, police forces, etc. around the world. However, when you stack up your chips like this, right, and you start to exhaust yourself with how much you can or can't continue to exploit people when you are as a nation as an economy as a ruling class dependent on exploitation theft of natural resources and just oppression in general. Sorry, that's the mail cart flying around in the van. What that means is that eventually you're going to make so many enemies, you're going to oppress and exploit, you are going to subjugate a portion of the population which outnumbers the imperialists and the colonialists by magnitudes and multiplies the forces and numbers by tens and twenties and thirties, eventually you will not be able to defend yourself. Eventually you will not be able to fight and struggle 
in the way that you had before. That's why, you know, out-and-out colonialism, military occupation, etc., only exist in a few places nowadays. Whereas, you know, the theft of wealth and natural resources through banks, oil executives, resource corporations, labor force uh, exploitation, etc., through um, international pressure and international, quote, law, um, as well as other methods. Um, this is the new way in which the imperialists and the colonialists have to steal and exploit and oppress and enslave the majority of the world's population simply for their continued survival but also for the continuation of the system by which they have established their survival, which is an exploitative and oppressive one. Why is it that you believe, or that we believe, that the Africans in America were not given weapons to defend themselves against uh, slaveholders, against slave masters, against the cessationist South, if the North was truly com committed to the idea of liberation for black people, which they were not. It is because, of course, putting guns, putting arms in the hands of oppressed people would lead to an opportunity where those oppressed people can free themselves. Now, you had four and a half million counted, known of, Africans in America near the end of the Civil War. Imagine if each one of them had been given a weapon and the opportunity to really fight and defend themselves fully. Didn't have the U.S. Army come into the South after the Civil War and for the main purpose of disarming. Not actually stopping the war, but disarming Africans. Not actually stopping the uh, enslavement, the murder, the rape, the degradation and dehumanization of African peoples, but in fact, for the purpose of taking their own ability, their weaponry, to defend themselves from them. That was the purpose of the occupation of the U.S. Army in the South, and that's why they left after less than a year, uh, because they had succeeded. And the rest of what they were there, that they said they were defending black folks against the racist onslaughts that they were defending, uh, you know, the development of a new system, all that was, of course, bullshit, because a lot of the plantations, a lot of the slave lands and slaveholders went on to own prisons, went on to uh, imprison the formerly enslaved, and have them work in the same fields, the same jobs, if not worse ones, under some of the same, if not worse even, conditions than they were dealing with uh, during uh, what we might call principled chattel slavery um, or kind of like what we conceptualize as like you know uh, generic slavery I don't even know what terminology to use for this my point being it shifted it changed and that's why the 13th amendment says um, you cannot be property or prisoner of another person except for when you are judged by a jury of your peers and convicted by a court of law um, so you can, you can be a slave as long as, you know, a judge says it's all right, or a court makes it so. Um, that's, that's the, that's the status 
that's the status of, you know, impoverished people, but especially oppressed people's groups and nations within the U.S. That's it right there. And so, you know, historically around the world, the imperialist powers, the colonialists have never wanted to build up the forces against them to such a level where they can be overrun. But now they have screwed screwed themselves in a lot of ways because, you know, the ongoing crises around the world have led to reverberations all over the world, meaning that different governments, different economies, different people groups have had to deal with the contradictory, complex nature by which these crises has impacted them, because it doesn't impact anybody the same way, even from one person to one person, um, and figured out how to reckon with that reality. Some of them have chosen a certain path known as socialism. Others have chosen other paths. Some have chosen to even take the capitalist road themselves and try to develop their own economies, to industrialize their own nations. But, as we see, historically, they tend to be subjugated to and dependent on the imperial core nations for any and all wealth accumulation, and therefore any and all production or productive forces become owned by and controlled, not the national bourgeoisie, not the national ruling class of the native population of this or that colonized nation, but in fact to the imperial core nations and to the colonizers, to the ruling class in Europe and in North America. So what does that mean for us today? Because I said I did want to finish on a positive note. That positive note being that ultimately this means that the oppressive forces that have been subjugating the world to the different forms of exploitation they've experienced to this point are incapable, incapable of continuing this system of oppression as it stands. They must be fought and they must be struck down because all reactionaries are paper tigers. All reactionaries, all oppressors, all the capitalists, all the imperialists will fall down eventually because their plain existence, their continued exploitation of the masses of people around the world necessitates a resistance, necessitates revolution. But again, as I was referencing earlier, these conditions do not bring about this reality in and of themselves, but this reality must be met with a conscious and organized class It must be directly dealt with by a vanguard party of the organized people who are most experienced, who are most exposed, who are most conscious and most organized in order to help lead those like myself and others into a revolutionary situation where the oppressed people, where the colonized people, where the dehumanized and degraded masses the populations of the world, the third world, the global south, all can put hands on the actual uh, power structure and take hold of it for themselves, can dismantle it and destroy it as it exists today, for it is a tool of the oppression by the minority over the majority, 
aka the ruling capitalist class over the working and oppressed peoples. It is a system by which the monopoly of violence through massive imperialist forces, militaries, police, intelligence agents, weaponry, surveillance, etc., is used to oppress and exploit and to kill and to trap and imprison and conceal and isolate and stop the revolutionary forces, but it is no longer possible. It's never been possible. It will never be possible because this idea of hegemony, this idea of unilateralism, this idea of unipolar power, it is very temporary. It is not unipolar. It is, in fact, inherently dependent on multiple different forces which are contradictory, which are fighting against each other in some cases, which are having disagreements, which are battling it out for supremacy. The European and North American Atlantis uh, Alliance, known as NATO, uh, the United Nations, the European Union, and other forces formed to concretize the neoliberal agenda during the imperialist age from the 90s to today. It has built itself up to a point of no return where the foundation is rocky the people are clear in their understanding that they do not want to live like this anymore people are clear in their understanding that this type of system cannot continue on any longer but what the people are not clear in is what needs to come next and that is our job as Leftists, socialists, communists, revolutionaries, workers, oppressed people, whatever you want to really tether yourself to individually is fine. But at the end of the day, we need to have the revolutionary and progressive forces progress, really meaning progress, not just a rhetorical turn of phrase come together in what dynamic unity is possible in whatever forms is necessary and capable of being accomplished in order to overthrow our oppressors once and for all. Thank you for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, the U.S. is always the bad guy. All power to the people. No to war on Russia. End the war on China. Uh, Down with NATO and all power to the revolutionary forces of the world. Peace.